0: Hello, and welcome. This is not, as you may have guessed from the title, a Human Circus episode. I should say, first of all, that what you're about to hear is in no way replacing Human Circus, and I am working on the next one of those. I just recorded something for the Patreon, and what I believe will be the final Prester John episode will be along soon after. So that's what this isn't. What this is, is a preview of something else I've been working on. Something you may, or may not, be interested in. For a while, I'd had the idea of making a boxing history podcast. Something not so much about the fights themselves, or analysis of them. More like the stories around them. In the end, I decided not to limit myself to just boxing. What you're about to hear is a preview of the result. I'm calling it The History of Sport. Stories from Outside the Lines. One thing you'll probably notice is that it's quite a bit shorter than my usual episodes. More like the length of a cup of coffee, with each episode short, digestible, and generally self-contained, rather than a several-course meal stretching on into one episode after another on a topic. In the first few episodes of the podcast, we'll look at questions like, What does soccer legend Diego Maradona have to do with labor history in Chicago? What connects a prize for children's literature to the early days of baseball? Why was the quote-unquote father of boxing so good with a sword? If you do enjoy it, and would like to hear more, I'll leave the Apple Podcasts link in the show notes, and it should also be available on all the usual other services. The podcast does have its own feed, so I won't be cluttering up this human circus one with other non-medieval subject matter. All of that being said, thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with the next Prester John episode. Man, I'll talk to you then. The fateful moment has arrived, and here they are in the ring. Men welcome. My name is Devin, and this is the History of Sport, where each episode I cover another short story from that long history. Today, the sport we are talking about is baseball, or at least something like it. An activity, let's say, that was starting to look quite a bit like the baseball we now know. We'll be talking about the letters of a Denver mining engineer, and we'll be talking about children's books or at least one particular children's book the book in question is from the year 1744 the title a little pretty pocket book the author an english publisher named john newbery and if that name sounds familiar to you you might be thinking of the newbery medal the award for children's literature that was named after him Newbury, the son of a farmer, would first set up shop in Reading before opening the doors at first one London location, and then another, where he published and sold books. It was there that he published a little pretty pocketbook, his first children's book, sometimes even called the first children's book, and not his last. Newbury would become known for producing books aimed specifically at children, at their entertainment and improvement. When you open a little pretty pocketbook, or at least the edition I'm reading, you're greeted with an illustration. There's a woman, seated, book in hand, the other hand raised to lecture the two children before her, and the dog behind them. Below it, the words, instruction with delight. With that purpose in mind, you turn to the title page on which the contents are announced. Quote, a little pretty pocket book, intended for the instruction and amusement of little Master Tommy and pretty Miss Polly, with two letters from Jack the Giant Killer, as also a ball and pincushion, the use of which will infallibly make Tommy a good boy and Polly a good girl. To which is added a little songbook, being a new attempt to teach children the use of the English alphabet, by way of diversion. And all of those things were there as promised. You could have, for a few pence more, not just the book, but a ball for a boy, or pincushion for a girl. Tommy, perhaps getting the better of it than Polly, I would say. And there were indeed letters from Jack the Giant Killer, one to Tommy and one to Polly. Your nurse called upon me today and told me that you was a good boy, the letter began, that you was dutiful to your father and mother, and that, when you have said your prayers in the morning and evening, you asked their blessing and in the daytime did everything they bid you. Tommy was told he was obedient. Obliging, clean, honest, and decent. He was sent this book of innocent games with which to amuse himself, and the promise that the rod would be sent, and he'd be given a good beating if he did not maintain his excellent character. From Jack, Polly received exactly the same message. As for that attempt to teach the alphabet by way of diversion... There was a game for every letter, little and large, one for each page. Below a woodcut illustration, the game itself was described in a rhyming four-line stanza, and then followed by a moral or lesson. Leapfrog, the game for lowercase m, is attached to the advice that, quote, Just so it is at court. Today you're in place. Tomorrow, perhaps, you're quite in disgrace. And badminton, or shuttlecock, carries a similar message. Thus checkered in life, as fortune does flow. Her smiles lift us high, her frowns sink us low. Some of the suggestions are more like activities than what we'd call games. There's hunting, swimming, flying a kite, and fishing below which the child is urged to, quote, Learn well the motions of the mind. Why you were made. For what designed. Among the many diversions on offer, there are ones played with coins such as peg farthing, chuck farthing, and pitch and hustle, which was, incidentally, banned among Washington's Continental Army. And, as you might expect, There are ball games in abundance. There is fives, still played by some today, in which you volley the ball against a wall with your hand, sometimes gloved, in a kind of hand tennis or squash. There is stool ball, a game with a strong history in women's sports, and a very long history in general, in which the batter defends their stool like a cricket player would a wicket. And in some versions, rounds the stools like bases. And for the capital I, there is cricket itself. There is trap ball, described in the book as quote, touch lightly the trap and strike low the ball. Let none catch you out, and you'll beat them all. And then, among those many ball based diversions, there is baseball. The early history of baseball has actually been a pretty contested topic, was once a hotly contested one, with nationalistic consequences at stake. Maybe that's no surprise. There was a lively debate about it in the mid-19th century American newspapers. There were loud cries that this game was of, quote, no foreign origin. There are stories, traditions, or legends, really, about it being an 1839 invention of the future American Civil War general, Abner Doubleday, about it being invented in Cooperstown, now home, by no accident or coincidence, to the Baseball Hall of Fame. There are those stories, but they were produced from nationalistic efforts to demonstrate that the game was truly American in origin not merely a grandchild of the English game of rounders. Not something that in itself made them inherently wrong, but hardly a good place to begin from, unless your goal was only ever to arrive at one conclusion. Those efforts involved a 1905 commission established by Albert Goodwill Spaulding. The Spaulding. The one you probably know from gloves and other equipment. The Spaulding, who would say of the English that they preferred cricket because it was quote, easy, and did not overtax their energy or thought. They involved National League President Abraham Mills, chosen by Spaulding to serve on that committee, who said that baseball had been established as being purely American, and that this was confirmed by quote, patriotism and research. They involved a letter, arriving from a Denver-based mining engineer named Abner Graves, who answered Spalding's call for information on the founding of the American game, and claimed to have witnessed the birth of baseball there in Cooperstown. What Graves saw, or what he said he saw, was apparently an update on Town Ball, itself quite similar to Old Cat. There having been no shortage of ball games of the sort in those days. Kind of like apples, we seem to have much fewer of them now. In town ball, or one version of it, a tosser would stand right next to the batter and loft the ball up six feet or so for the batter to hit as it fell and then run to a goal and back without being plunked, soaked, or plugged by a thrown ball, and put out. If the batter swung and missed, and the tosser caught the ball on the first bounce, then the tosser was up to bat. If the batter hit the ball, but someone else caught it, then they would be up next. Out in the field, there would be no set positions, and there might be as many as 20 to 50 boys rushing for the ball, which, yes, did lead to frequent collisions. In Graves' version of events, a young Doubleday, only about 16 then, added some rules, some limitations, and some embellishments to this game. Now, there were the familiar four bases, with the batter standing next to one of them, and the pitcher placed further away, in a six-foot ring, where they'd throw the ball from under the hip, as in softball today. No longer a game that could pack in as many players as wanted to take part. There would now be, along with that pitcher and a catcher, four outfielders, three basemen, and a player each in the modern shortstop and unshifted second base positions, for a total of 11 fielders. Each would try to collect the ball, and then, like in town ball, throw it at the runner to put them out. The ball itself was described as having plenty of bouncing qualities, which maybe made this all a little easier on the batter getting hit by it. Graves closed that first letter with a nostalgic remembrance of the great players of that time. Boys like Nels Brewer, Joseph Chaffee, and John Starkweather, and of the games played at the Otsego Academy campus and at Finney Farm on the west shore of Otsego Lake. In that letter and the one that followed, when Spaulding asked if he had any evidence of any of this. Not something that Spaulding was going to ultimately care too much about. Graves would try to fix Doubleday's invention to a particular year. 1839, maybe. Or perhaps as late as 1840. More 41. He remembered playing marbles for keeps with other smaller boys in front of Cooper's tailor shop, watching while Doubleday explained the game by drawing in the dirt with a stick. He remembered how those smaller boys didn't like the idea of the limited numbers that would exclude them from being able to play. He remembered it being around the period of the log cabin and hard cider campaign of General Harrison, a reference to William Henry Harrison's presidential campaign, in which he had really run with a columnist's dismissal, that given a barrel of hard cider and a pension, Harrison would have just disappeared from public sight altogether, and spent his days before a coal fire in a cabin. Drinking cider and studying moral philosophy. Graves remembered a big game between the Otsego Academy boys and Professor Green's select school. How Green himself had swung and missed three times, with Doubleday unusually close behind him to catch the ball. So close that Green would claim the catcher had actually reached out and snatched the ball away before it could ever reach his bat. Graves signed off his second letter with the declaration that, quote, Just in my present mood, I would rather have Uncle Sam declare war on England and clean her up, rather than have one of her citizens beat us out of baseball. However, it may have all been a bit too late for that. Though I have no intention of unpicking the threads of the many ball and bat games down through the decades and centuries to arrive at anything definitive here, it may have been about 150 years too late. At least that. In the 1744 A Little Pretty Pocketbook, baseball is there by name on the page for capital L, Page 44 in the edition I'm looking at. It's maybe the very first reference to it by that name, or at least it's often credited as such, nearly a full century before Doubleday's supposed invention. The woodcut on that page shows three posts driven into the ground. Beside each one, a boy, and with admittedly no obvious sign of ball or bat. Two houses in the background. But the description does sound familiar. The ball, once struck, away flies the boy, to the next destined post, and then home with joy. Posts aside, it sounds like about all you could hope for from a summer game of baseball. Pretty ideal, really. And then there is the lesson it is supposed to teach, which is this. Thus, seamen, for lucre, fly over the main, but with pleasure transported, return back again. Baseball, after all, and underneath the layered accretion of rules, regulations, and traditions, is all about the happiness of returning home. It's a simple joy. Everyone is tense with excitement.